0: I took a screenwriting workshop from these two guys and they were great and it was all about plot and story. And they said at the end, this isn't brain surgery. This isn't rocket science. It's more important than that. And I thought, it is true because stories are what get us through. Stories are how humans have encouraged one another to survive the dark times and given pointers about how to survive the dark times. I think stories are more important than ever right now. There are so many stories out there that are not inspiring us to be better versions of ourselves. We need stories that inspire us to be better versions of ourselves, to help us be good humans. I always say my heroine in my mystery series is a huge Shakespeare fan. At some point, someone asks her, why are you so obsessed with Shakespeare? She says, reading Shakespeare, watching Shakespeare plays, makes me feel better about being human.
1: Hey there. Welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. Thank you so much for joining me for these meaningful conversations with literary agents, where you can learn all about their manuscript wish list, how they agent, and many other invaluable publishing insights. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Litmatch and a certified developmental editor who has also worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency. I'm always on the hunt for noteworthy literary agents who are making big differences in the world by advocating for authors and making their publishing dreams come true. I'm especially thrilled to introduce today's guest. If you've had a chance to listen to my bonus episodes, this name will be familiar to you. She is the brilliant, insightful, and passionate Paula Minet, and Every time I talk to Paula, I walk away a better writer and editor. I'm so excited to bring her expertise and insights to you today. Paula Meunier is the senior literary agent and content strategist at Talcott Notch Literary Services and the USA Today best-selling author of the Mercy Carr series. A Borrowing of Bones, the first in the series, was nominated for the Mary Higgins Clark Award and named the Dog Wise Book of the Year. Blind Search was inspired by the real-life rescue of a little boy with autism who got lost in the woods and the hiding place debuted in march 2021 her latest mercy card mystery the wedding plot releases july 19 2022 paula credits the hero dogs and mission canine rescue her own rescue dogs and a deep love of new england as her series major influences paula also has written three popular books and writing plot perfect the Writer's Guide to Beginnings, which you'll be familiar with if you do listen to those bonus episodes, and Writing with Quiet Hands. She's also written Fixing Freddy and Happier Every Day. Paula lives in New England with her family and Bear, the Newfoundland Retriever Rescue, Bliss, the Great Pioneer's Australian Cattle Dog Rescue, a pandemic puppy named Blondie, and noose, much like Elvis in her books, and Ursula the cat, a rescue Torby tabby who does not think much of dogs. It's my great honor to bring you Paula Mounier. Thank you, Paula, for being here with me today. I'm so excited to have you. I have had the great pleasure of coming across Paula in a writer's digest retreat that we did back in situ in 2018. So I had a little bit of a small group experience with Paula. She's brilliant. She has so many good things to say. And before that, I was inspired by Paula at the Writer's Digest 2015 conference in New York City and just was blown away by her enthusiasm and her passion for stories and why they are so important and so needed. I'm excited to talk to you about your manuscript wish list and your relationships with clients and what you're looking for. So thank you, Paula. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's so much fun to see you again. Yeah, it's so fun. It's been a while, especially with the pandemic and having the gaps of not being able to go to some live conferences. It's fun to start to get interaction again. It's so important in this community. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about your manuscript wish list, but before we get into that, I was hoping that you could share with us what brought you to this career of being a literary agent and a writer, because you are a senior literary agent, so you have a wealth of experience. I've seen this firsthand from your teachings. And if you ever have an opportunity to sign up for a class or course with Paula or to attend a presentation with her, you should do it because she's brilliant. And she, she provides very practical resources for you to apply it to your own writing as well. Could you talk to us about your beginnings and how that grew into your profession and where you are right now in your career?
0: Well, back in the dark ages, <laughs> I was a reporter. I did newspapers and magazines, and I loved being a reporter, but I got my first job in book publishing. I had worked for a magazine that had a book division, and then I went to work as managing editor on the production side for a book publisher out of Northern California, which was called Prima, is now part of Crown and Random House. And the first day I went to my first meeting, and I realized that they were going to pay me to sit around and talk about books all day. And as much as I loved newspapers and magazines, it was really books to me were the thing. Were always a thing to me as a kid. I loved books. I big reader. And so the idea that I was going to sit around with these people and talk about books all day was just fabulous. I knew right then, this is where I belong. And I worked in book publishing for many years. I kept on writing on the side, but I started off in production and then I moved to acquisitions. I was an acquisitions editor for nearly 20 years. Acquisitions editors are the people who actually buy your books from your agent for the publisher. So I was the writer, I was the acquisitions editor, and then I became an agent. I went to work for my own agent's agency after I'd finished my career in acquisitions. So I've sat at most of the seats at the table in publishing. Been the author, I've been the acquisitions editor, now I've been the agent. Only thing I haven't done is bookseller, but everything else, every other seat at the table, I've had that seat at the table. So I have a pretty good understanding of what goes on, whether it's at home while you're writing, whether it's at the publishing house and what's going on behind the scenes, or whether it's with the agent trying
1: to sell your work. That is so invaluable, all of that experience. I've always been such a huge supporter of having that hands-on experience, and that really teaches you how this world works and how this business works. Knowing all sides of that, does that help you think about how to represent the clients that you're working with, how to present a sales pitch to them? Well, absolutely. It is a business,
0: right? And I tell people that they're going to sell, if you're talking about traditional publishing, they're going to sell to a traditional publisher when they figure out but the sweet spot is where their talent meets the marketplace. Mm-hmm. If were a Venn diagram, what would that sweet spot be for you? Where would your talent meet the marketplace? And a lot of writers, they don't think about it that way. They're thinking about telling a great story and they forget to acknowledge the marketplace realities. And I think often you can be writing in a vacuum and get frustrated
1: that you're not selling, but you're selling because you haven't thought about this other piece, the business piece. Do you feel like careers start to get stunted if they haven't thought about that business piece of it?
0: Well, yes, and and sometimes they just never get off the ground because they haven't thought about it. They're writing something that there's simply no place for in the current marketplace. Now, that's always changing, right? The sands are shifting beneath our feet. Nobody nobody knows what's going to sell tomorrow. And publishing, you're working at least a year out. So you're writing a book, and even if you've finished it, quickly and you finished it by say you're writing it now 2021 you finish it in 2022 you revise it by 2023 you're ready to shop it and if it's sold it will come out in maybe 2024 2025 you're guessing if you're writing a book now You're guessing what the marketplace is going to want two, three, four years from now. And that's difficult because as the pandemic has shown us, we never know what's really going to happen. It's tricky. And the marketplace does change. But there are trends and fads and trends that you can take a look at and you can say, okay, right now this area is overpublished. So if I'm writing a story for that area, odds are I'm going to have a much harder
1: time selling it than writing in this subgenre, which is underpublished at the moment. Do you feel like there is a surplus of a certain type of story?
0: Well, I think right now it's harder to sell dark stories right now because I think people are kind of they've been living in the darkness. <laughs> they don't want to read dark. We need some happy things now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Which is why from March 2020 to March 2021, romance sales jumps 24%. Because people yeah. escape. They want to read happy stories. That said, the flip side of that is the people who feel better, not by escaping, but by thinking, oh, it could be worse. Those people are turning to horror. And horror, which was had been a very hard sell until recently, is now having a bit of a moment because I guess people are thinking, whoa, there's a pandemic. It could be worse. We, we could be invaded by aliens or something worse could happen. Is under the bed. I don't
1: know. I don't write horror myself, but I've talked to a lot of horror writers. It's really interesting because horror's a release for them. It's one of those things where it's like we can communicate our fears, we can fabricate our fears into these fiction stories to have that release, but we don't have to actually experience the fear in real life. Absolutely. That's really interesting that they're having a moment because there is a lot going on. It's nice to see some of these stories maybe that weren't getting the attention that they deserved and now they're having a little bit of a spotlight. Maybe that momentum will continue. I mean, if you take the example of vampires, I mean, you go back a long way with vampires,
0: right? And yet... Every 10 years or whatever, oh, vampire stories are dead. You can't sell vampire stories, blah, blah, blah. And then along comes Anne Rice and reinvents vampires. And then along comes Twilight. And then along comes Charlene Harris. So vampires are really never dead. They keep coming back when someone finds a fresh way to tell a vampire story. Mm. So even when it's hard to sell a certain kind of story, that's only true until someone tells a fresh version
1: that captures people's imagination and reinvigorates that genre. That's so interesting to me. I feel like they are writers who are very are resistant to the idea of telling the same story, but different? And then there's a lot of writers who thrive on, we got to tell the same story, but different. Really, do you think that there's no original stories, that it's just the stories that have been bred from the beginning and we're telling these in different ways, we're finding those unique twists that are making it have a surge of excitement for it again? Well, everybody says,
0: okay, there are only two stories in the world. Stranger comes to town or hero goes off on a quest and then there are books that say there are only seven plots and then there are only nine plots and then there are only 28 plots, whatever. You can make the argument that every story has been told, there's nothing new under the sun until there is. Until someone comes along and reinvents it or reinvigorates it rates it or tells us something that shows us something we haven't seen before. There are basic elements of storytelling, unless you're doing experimental storytelling. Very hard sell there. (laughs) And not really. We won't talk about that. But but if you talk about traditional storytelling, there are certain elements that readers have come to expect. And the reason readers love a particular genre, and most readers have their favorite genres, they read that genre because that genre provides them with a particular kind of reading experience that they like. Yes. If you're going to write a genre, you have to provide that kind of reading experience. Now, surprise and delight your readers. But if you ignore the conventions of that genre altogether, then readers won't get that reading experience that they paid their 30 bucks for. You have to remember, and we like to say in publishing, the first page sells the book. That's why beginnings are so important. The last page sells the next book. And the last page is where that reader decides if they've gotten the reading experience they wanted. And if they're satisfied with the ending, It does not be happy ending, it has to be satisfying ending, emotionally satisfying. Then they think, oh, I want to buy that writer's next book. What else have they written? Because they've
1: gotten that reading experience they were looking for. This is so interesting because you are a great teacher for writers. And you're talking about these conventions with genre. Now, when I'm thinking about how could writers be studying these conventions and really making sure that when they're writing their genre, they're upholding these conventions. Naturally, the first thing I would think about is, are you reading a lot in that genre? Are you starting to pick up on what these conventions are. Can you identify them? Can you put words to them? Is there any other advice that you could give to these writers who are trying to study their genre deeply so that they can start to really give the experience to the readers that they want to be giving while also writing for their own passions and their story that they want to tell and not just writing because they think it's the way that needs to be told. How can they find the balance between the two?
0: Well, I think you first of all, you have to acknowledge those conventions, identify them and acknowledge them. And the tropes, whether it's dragons or fairy godmothers, whatever the tropes happen to be. Because the tropes can be tired, especially in science fiction fantasy, which a lot of what we see from beginning writers is so derivative, we can't sell it. You have to find a way to twist and tweak and remake those tropes without abandoning them altogether. That's really the challenge, no matter what your genre. I always think of Hallmark and that writing. Now it's Christmas time. So Hallmark it's Christmas all year round, but it's especially Christmas now. My mother mother watches these Hallmark Christmas movies and you talk about tropes, romance, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. It's all right there. And what's funny about it is that they have bingo cards for Hallmark movies where, oh, here's a cute guy from wearing who's a veterinarian, right? And that's one thing. Or it'll be, oh, the, the city girl comes to the country for excellent reason. Or, oh, here's a bed and breakfast. I mean, they have all these bingo cards that literally list the tropes of the romance that you see on Hallmark. Ask yourself, what are the tropes? And if you want to cheat, the best way, of course, is like you said, Read widely in your genre and even subgenre, so that yeah. you can see how other writers acknowledge those tropes and those conventions and play with them to make them new. And hopefully, when that study, then you'll find this unique take that you can do exactly. And you can what one. Fun way to do it is to have a movie night and take three movies that are faithful adaptations of best selling novels in your subgenre and just write them right out beat by beat as you watch them. And I promise you, if you do that for three movies, beat by beat, scene by scene, you'll see what the tropes are and
1: what the conventions are. Yep naturally maybe taking implicit knowledge and being to explicitly communicate what you're missing in your story and making it better and better. And as an agent, when you're working with your writers, your clients, are you helping them see these? Or usually when you have already offered representation, does their story adhere to most of their conventions?
0: Well, I was an editor for many years. And so I do take a fairly heavy editorial approach to agenting. I know how editors think, I've sat on that side of the table. I know what they need to convince their publisher to take on a project. So I tend to be very outspoken about what I think a project needs or doesn't need if I'm going to sell it. It can't be too far off for me to sign someone. The, the project has to be pretty close to good to go. I'll tell you what a famous agent, Jason Yarn, once said at a conference when I was a beginning agent, I heard him saying this and I thought, uh-oh, because I was still thinking like an editor and not like an agent. And what he said was, publishers will take you on if you're 95% there. I can take you on at 90% and help you get that extra 5%. So a lot of the beginning projects I see aren't at 90% yet. There may mm-hmm. be a or 75%. So you have to do that work, right? As the writer, you have to figure out how to get to 90% so that you can attract an agent and a publisher.
1: That's fascinating. So when you went from editor to agent, you had to really start to shift your mindset about how to approach the stories, but you still had that editing background, which I think is such an advantage to helping your writers rehash out what needs to be done in these manuscripts.
0: Yes, it is an advantage. Certainly it is an advantage. I will say though, that what I learned going from an editor to agent, I had my list that my house produced every year. And I as an editor, I was responsible for finding projects that suited that list and suited the house that we knew we could sell well. But when I became an agent and I was sales driven sort of as an editor because editors are judged by the performance of their projects. So I, of course, had to be aware of sales and think about sales, but not the way I did as an agent. And as an agent, I learned that sales became became even more important. And the selling points of a book was my job to find the selling points of that book and help the writer realize what those selling points were and to capitalize on those selling points when I went to shop the
1: publishers. So the pitch seems really important when you're creating the sales pitch. And also it's not surprising That the pitch when a writer is querying you, that the pitch is going to be important in order to attract your attention. Do you find that there are specific qualities in a pitch that you definitely like to adhere to for when you're presenting a sales pitch? And are there certain things that you like to look for in query letters that are submitted to you? What you really need, and I learned this the hard way, is that I
0: can't sell a project if I can't sum it up in 15 words or less. And I can't sell it to Hollywood in any more than 10 words. Wow. Hollywood doesn't read. So you've got 50 words and then 10 words. And if you honestly, if you as a writer cannot sum up your story, the main action, the main scene, the main emotional impact, the arc of the character, meaning protagonist.
1: In 50 words or less, you don't know your story well enough. I hear you with that because often when we start to stumble on our pitches, it means that there's something that we haven't fully fleshed out in the manuscript. Could you give us an example of a 50-word pitch versus a 10-word pitch, either for one of your client's books or for your own book, Borrowing a Bone, so they can hear these big things that you're talking about, these character arcs, these emotional arcs, these external stakes that are being raised, the big plot event, just as an example
0: okay well here this is the book i wrote called plot perfect if you're having trouble plotting i wrote it for you i'm going to read a couple and what amount to log lines or elevator pitches mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about here so here's one for gone girl everybody's seen gone girl right if you haven't read it you've seen it it's sold eight million copies in hardcover people talking about another story that took a genre and really needed its own exactly Gone Girl is a thriller about a wife gone missing and the husband held responsible for her disappearance. Is she dead or just pretending? Is he a murderer or just a cuckold? That's the main action. That's the plot. Yes. Told from alternating his and her points of view, that's what makes it different. This twisted love story reveals the terrible truths about an ordinary marriage, the tie that binds for better or worse. That's the theme and the emotional impact. Gillian Flynn had written other books before this, Sharp Objects and one other thing. And they were great and they did okay, but they didn't do... 8 million cover, copies in hardcover well, right? right? And you ask yourself, okay, so why did that book break out? Well, I think it's because out of all of her books so far, it's the one that most resonated with the most people. Because everyone has either been in or known someone who's been in a relationship that could have gone really south really fast or did go nearly south really fast, right? And where you don't know who that guy is next to you in bed or that woman is next to you in bed. You don't know who that person is and you find out the hard way. Yeah. So that was a kind of story so many people could relate to.
1: And of course, it's very cleverly told. I love what you're getting in here because it makes me think of one of your blogs. You talk about how character arcs and the emotional arcs are so essential to the story. And what I'm hearing you say about this pitch with Gone Girl and why people resonated with it was because of this emotional arc. When you're looking for future clients, what are some character arcs that you think really make a story stand out versus ones that fall flat.
0: Someone once said, I won't remember now who it was, but that basically a story was you put a character up a tree and throw rocks at it. And the farther you go into the story, the bigger the rocks are supposed to get. And then you get them down. That's the character arc. Because most stories are about the hero's journey. They're about someone who faces all these obstacles in their lives and comes out at the end, a better version of themselves. Now, mm-hmm. there are stories where the hero comes out a worse version of himself, like The Godfather, where we yeah. watch a war hero become a mafioso, or Breaking Bad, where you watch this chemistry teacher become a drug overlord. Those projects much harder to sell because most readers want the story of someone becoming a better, more enlightened version of their best self, because that's what we all want to do. Most of us want to become better versions of our own self. I'll read you one from Eat, Pray, Love, which is sort of the classic category killer for self-actualization memoir. The ultimate becoming a better version of yourself. That's what all these stories are about. Eat, Pray, Love is a memoir about an unhappy divorced woman who sets out on a journey of self-discovery and learns to feed her body in Italy, eat, her soul in India, pray, and her heart in Bali, love. Now, how many memoirs do we know that are about an unhappy divorced woman who sits out on a journey of self discovery? They don't go eat in Italy, pray in India, and fall in love in Bali. That's what sets this book apart. And it's got a perfect three act structure. Mm-hmm. The arc is right there in the title, eat. Pray, love, Italy, India, Bali. That three-act structure revealed right in the title gives this endearing story of self-actualization a solid foundation that resonates with readers. So I would make the argument that that book sold so many zillions of copies, not because it was so fabulous, although it is, but she's kind of whiny and it gets kind of slow in the middle, but doesn't matter. That perfect three-act structure, that perfect promise, eat, pray, love, you're going to go on this journey with Elizabeth Gilbert and she's going to learn to do these things and you're going to go with her. That's a hell of a promise for a memoir or for any book. And you can see the character arc right there in that short blog line. Her journey, her emotional and physical and spiritual journey is all right there. That's what you want to try to do.
1: You want to give a sense of the arc of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And there's when they're giving that sense of the arc, usually it seems like there's a lot of vulnerability. And that is that opportunity when you put yourself out to being vulnerable to transform, to grow, because there's this chance of you're doing something to face maybe something that you didn't want to acknowledge before. It's interesting to me, you brought up Godfather and Walter White and Breaking Bad as the ones that go the opposite way. And those are immediately the stories that I think about when I think about antiheroes. This idea here of you mentioned that those are hard to sell. And you gave the reason why, because most people want to transform. Those stories are breakouts as well. How do you think those pitches started to be crafted in something that caught attention versus was something that people would shy away from?
0: I think it has to do with falling in love with the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Even if you're writing an antihero, it's much easier to sell a likable antihero, right? We fall in love with Al Pacino, the war hero. We fall in love with Breaking Bad, Walter White. It's just like, think about Dexter. This is a serial killer, but he's a serial killer who only kills other serial killers. We feel for him. Part of us applauds that mission. So we stick with him. Part of it is giving your character, your hero, your heroine, something really relatable. If I were a serial killer, I would only kill other serial killers. That's a very relatable thing because readers want to put themselves in the protagonist's place. They yeah. want to follow the hero or the heroine on their journey throughout the book. Yeah, That's and what reading does for
1: us. You have been such a huge advocate for my stories are so important and the world needs stories. And you have this really brilliant quote. I'm not going to try to sing it in the language because I'm going to butcher it. But you have a very specific quote that you hang in your office. It's up on your website. And I'd love for you to share why this quote is the one that has stayed with you for so long and why it has continued to support and motivate you not only in your own writing career, but also the age career? Well,
0: it's the French version of basically after food, clothing and shelter, all that's really necessary is books. I think that's true. Years ago, when I was very young, I took a screenwriting workshop from these two guys and they were great. And it was all about plot and story. And they said at the end, this isn't brain surgery. This isn't rocket science. It's more important than that. And I thought, It is true because stories are what get us through. Stories are how humans have encouraged one another to survive the dark times and given pointers about how to survive the dark times. I think stories are more important than ever right now. There are so many stories out there that are not inspiring us to be better versions of ourselves. We need stories that inspire us to be better versions of ourselves, to help us be good humans. I always say my heroine in my mystery series is a huge Shakespeare fan. At some point, someone asked her, why are you so obsessed with Shakespeare? She says, reading Shakespeare, watching Shakespeare plays makes me feel better about being human. So we are human, and sometimes we don't feel too good about it. You look around and think, "What? what is a species that we managed to do? But there are right. writers who make you feel better about being
1: human. And I think that's what we need now. I agree more. I think that stories for me have always been this consistent and resilient source of hope and reason for us to persevere, reason for us to grow, to become better human beings and not disown the shadowy parts of us because being human is to be imperfect, but to recognize that we can learn from those shadowy parts and actually make peace with them. And that can make you maybe more empathetic. That can make you more A person to do X, Y, Z in your life, whether that be career, personal, family, whatever it is, that relatable experience is the human condition.
0: We don't have to write happy stories, but they do want hopeful stories. I always tell my clients, okay, if you're writing an unhappy ending, there are two kinds of unhappy endings. There is, and pardon my French, life is shit endings, and there's nothing we can do about it, so we may as well slit our wrists and call it a day. And then there's life is shit, but it's all we've got, so we have to find a way to make it meaningful. You can sell the latter. Try selling the former, not selling much. The- yeah. yeah. If you are
1: writing a story
0: that's not a happy story.
1: That's what's going to keep us going back from war. This is life. There is pain. There is suffering in life. But there's also a way that we can handle this and maybe become better because of it. There's always a balance to everything. I love stories that are doing that. Now, you are heavily involved in the crime writing community. Talk to me about your experience in this crime community. I know that these are stories that you represent. I know that these are stories that you write. Why crime? How do you start to find hope out of the stories that you're telling and representing? I
0: love crime fiction. I've always loved crime fiction since I was a kid reading Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown. I think there are all kinds of crime fiction. I mean, ultimately, all crime fiction is about the search for truth, whether it's X, Y, or Z. And it's a puzzle. Often it's who did it and figuring out the puzzle of why and where and how. But also, It's a search for truth and justice. Crime fiction, usually there's some kind of justice, maybe poetic justice. It may not be, you know, the killer goes off to jail. It may be some other different kind of justice, but there is usually some sort of justice, some sort of reckoning for the evildoer. And I think that makes people feel comforted that bad things happen, but we're going to address the bad things and see that the people who do the bad things are somehow dealt with. I think that the comforting, reassuring part of crime fiction. Yeah. There can be noir, and there can be really dark, dark elements, but usually, somehow, some
1: way, justice is served. And I think that's a comfort to people. So much so. Crime must have a lot of subgenres within the crime world. You just mentioned there is no noir. What do you think are some of the main crime subgenres that you like to work with And when you're looking at these stories, what are some of the main conventions and tropes that you particularly feel drawn to?
0: There are cozies, which are sort of lighter amateur sleuth mysteries. There are thrillers, which can be a woman in jeopardy, whatever. There are police procedurals. They're basically cops and private detectives. There's noir, which is a darker more cynical scene. There's so many different kinds of crime fiction. There's historical crime fiction. And so there's all different kinds. And I think if you're writing crime fiction or what any genre, you really need to know and understand the differences between the genres and subgenres so that you can speak to those readers in the language of that subgenre, whatever it may be. I particularly like traditional mysteries, which are, they fall between noir and cozies. Things like Louise Penny, Ellie Griffiths, Anne Cleves, Julia Spencer Fleming, Sarah Stewart Taylor, all these kinds of writers that write traditional mysteries. I love that. I also represent police procedurals, private detective novels, all those, those can be a hard sell right now. It's like thrillers, especially... Thrillers written by writers of color, very popular right now, very much sought after. Cozies, I don't represent a lot of cozies. I I err on the traditional mystery end of cozy. I love science-driven mysteries, but they're hard to sell. If anybody's writing one, send it to me. I, I do love thrillers. I'm always looking for good thrillers. And those can be sort of domestic thrillers, a la Gone Girl, all kinds of mysteries, all kinds of crime fiction. I'm also looking for
1: women's fiction and for rom-coms because rom-coms are hot now. When you look at our women's fiction, do you think that there are subgenres for women's fiction? And if so, what are they?
0: They are, I mean, women's fiction can be also book club fiction. It's a term that applies to any book that has, gives the reader this kind of reading experience that people in book clubs like to read about. So it can be women's fiction, it can be historical fiction, it can be crime fiction, but it gives a certain Certain kind of reading experience that basically means it's a story where there's enough meat to it, and it's different enough that people who read a lot people will find something different to talk about. Be deeply seamed deeply layered. Those kinds of stories really do well. Literary fiction also can do well in book club. People are always looking for book club fiction. Women's fiction can be that. But women's fiction basically means stories that, unlike romance, which is primarily focused on the romantic relationship between two people, that's what romance is. And the story, the main action is about that. Women's fiction is bigger than that. It's not just about a woman's romantic relationship. It's about a woman's relationship with her parents, with her children, with her grandchildren, with her friends, with her colleagues. It's a bigger picture.
1: You're speaking to my heart here. I love <laughs> women's fiction and book club fiction. One thing that I think that some writers wonder is, can a man write women's fiction?
0: Or sure. certainly men write book club fiction all the time. And men can write women's fiction, but I'm not sure. I can't think of anybody right off the top of my head. I could right. do a lot of book club fiction. And certainly there's what they used to call Guy lit, Nick Hornby type stories. Things like The Rosie Project, written by a man. Those kinds of stories, certainly men
1: can write and have done very well writing. What are some of your favorite women's fiction books right now? Alice
0: Hoffman. I love Alice Hoffman. I'm not sure she's actually women's fiction, but if she could call her women's fiction, you could call her literary fiction. You could call her Yankee realism, magical realism. You call her a million things, but I love her and her new book is out. I read Elizabeth Burr. I'm always looking for new women who are writing women's fiction. So I'd love to sign the next Nancy Say. So if you're writing women's fiction, do query me because I am always looking for good women's fiction.
1: Definitely. Sometimes you said that you're not really looking for fantasy, but sometimes in sci-fi, but sometimes you do take it. So what is the fantasy and sci-fi that you like to represent versus ones that you would stray away from?
0: It just has to be really high concept and original, because again, so much science fiction fantasy is derivative. Well, if you think about it, if you're writing science fiction and fantasy, you're still hitting up against Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, and rightfully so, because they're geniuses. But look at those two stories, Lord of the Rings. Tolkien. And then years later, along comes George R. R. Martin. And what does he do? He writes, the Lord of the Rings meets the Wars of the Roses, meaning the literal Wars of the Roses, historical conflict in Britain. He did the same but different. He knew that he was up against the Lord of the Rings juggernaut too, but he made it different. And he made it different by literally basing all of his stories in the Game of Thrones endless volumes. Mm And we're still waiting for the next one, right? On the Wars of the Roses, which of course is why they're so bloody because the real Wars of the Roses were really bloody too. That's what you have to do if you're writing science fiction fantasy. You have to come up with something that's not the same. That means your magic has to be unique. All the tropes have to be reinvented or reconfigured or reimagined so that they're not just like every other dragon or every other spell or every other thing you read in science fiction fantasy. You can also look to someone like Andy Weir who wrote the Martian. Mm-hmm. Now, The Martian, he self published because at the time nobody was publishing hard science fiction because everybody thought hard science fiction was dead. And then Antonio totally resuscitated, rejuvenated, and reinvigorated hard science fiction. He self published, but then within seconds, I guess, Matt Damon snapped up the movie rights. And why? Because you can pitch that book in three words Castaway on Mars. That's all you need. Castaway on Mars. Matt Damon instead of Tom Hanks. You're good to go. If you're writing science fiction fantasy, Think high concept, think the same, but different in a big
1: way. Because otherwise, you're competing against geniuses and you're going to lose out. That's all great. High concepts, something that they can be working on, something they can be thinking about, combining genres, subgenres. But then you also do some nonfiction, right? I do. I love nonfiction.
0: I did a lot of nonfiction as an acquisitions editor. Nonfiction. You really kind of have to have a platform if you're writing nonfiction. Platform is not that important in fiction. That's the good news. But in, in nonfiction, it is, which basically means you have to be able to prove that there's an audience for your book. Here's one of my latest nonfiction. Oh, I love that title. Yes. The Girls Who Stepped Out of line: Untold Stories of the Women Who Changed the Course of World War II, written by Major General Mary Kay Eater. So this is written by a real lady general who was going all around the world. She speaks all around the world to military organizations and historical organizations and everybody wants to hear her talk, right? So she has this big platform, but she was also meeting all these women. She was meeting, she told me about it. She was meeting all these women whose stories are gonna die because they're aging out, right? That's scary.
1: yeah.
0: And there weren't any left of of these women who, whether they were rescuing Jewish children or being spies or all these crazy things these, these women were doing during World War II to help the war effort. They were dying out and their stories were dying with them. And she says, I want to tell their stories. I says, good, tell their stories, write me a proposal. And this was the book, the book is, Already sold out. It's first printing. It's doing incredibly well. and, And she has such a speaking schedule that I can't even keep up with. And everybody loves this book. It's gotten fabulous reviews. It's off to a great start. Already sold out. She has a platform. More important, she had a great idea. So you have to write a book proposal if you're selling nonfiction. So a lot of people writing nonfiction don't understand that. But nonfiction requires a book proposal to shop, which means you don't have to necessarily finish the whole book, whether it's on training dogs or unsung stories of unsung heroes of World War II. Either way, you need a book proposal, which is a specific kind of sales document that you need to put together to show that there's an audience for your book. All you have to do is you can go to careerauthors.com and you can look up my article on book proposals. There are several there and check out what you need because you really do need a book proposal to shop nonfiction and you need a platform. So start building your platform now.
1: And if you are in the works of building your platform, write some fiction. While you're building it, maybe. I mean,
0: it doesn't hurt to have a a platform. And honestly, anything, if you're writing fiction, anything that informs your story, whether it's personal or professional, is definitely a selling point. And that's true for nonfiction too. So whatever about you, personally or professionally, informs your story, you need to make sure that you communicate that. Because Mm -hmm. that is in and of itself a selling point whether you're a cop writing police procedurals or a baker whose cozy mysteries are set in a bakery, that's important.
1: I love that because it is touching on this reality that each of us is unique in our own way. And you're encouraging us to explore that and be proud of it instead of shy away from it. The best thing you can do is figure out
0: what about you informs your story because that's a selling point. And honestly, that's, if you're kind of lost, in terms of thinking about the same but different, that's how you make your stories different.
1: Absolutely. Well, Paula, at the end of every podcast, I like to do a lightning three. My hope here is that you can answer each of these questions in one sentence or less. So my first question for you is, you love dogs. Dogs are in your books. You've represented books with dogs. And I believe along the lines of sometime when I was following you, I saw something that you talked about, how we can learn a lot about how we work with dogs and how we write stories. Can you tell us why you think working with dogs can make us better writers?
0: Well, first of all, you need patience. And patience is a writer's best friend. And you can't give up. Patience and practice, that's how you train a dog. And that's how
1: you train yourself to be a good writer. That's a wonderful answer. And I'm going to throw in there as well, Paula wrote this great book called Fixing Freddy. (laughs) that can also teach you some patience. I'm also a huge dog lover, very pro dog owner. If you love dogs, you should not only query Paula, but you should read Fixing Freddy and all these other great books with dogs and learn patience, learn more patience. It's a great answer. My second question for you is so across everything you've done, you have shared how the common denominator between it all is your commitment to writers and writing. How do you think the writers you represent defined this commitment. What are some things they would say about you that show that you are committed to them and their writing?
0: Well, they know I never give up. I keep on shopping and keep on shopping. Sometimes it's timing is everything in our business as well as any other, and so sometimes the timing's not right. But if you want to be a career author, you want to make a living as a writer, you have to keep on writing and if one thing doesn't work you try something else. So I try to take a strategic approach to writers careers and that involves the writer taking a hard look at who they are as a writer, who they want to become as a writer, where they want to go in their career and how we can get there.
1: Yes. And having someone to talk that out with is great because we can definitely, I think, have our visions, but spin a little bit in our heads. So teams, it's all, it takes a village and the literary agent, I cannot press it to enough writers out there. They are essential. When you find the right match, It can make the world of a difference for your career and for you personally as a writer and your growth. My last and third question for you is, what is a lesson you've learned from your own writing that you found meaningful and often share it with your clients?
0: Well, I think the most important thing is to keep writing. You just never know what's going to hit, right? Sometimes you write stories and they go nowhere. I never sold my first novel, but my first novel got me an agent. And that first novel also got me my first publishing deal. So even though it wasn't published itself. So that first novel happened to belong to a genre that died overnight, as genres sometimes do. The world moves on and that genre's over. I kept on writing. And... I've kept on trying new things. And I think that's the most important. Writers write. Writers tell stories. Agents do not want one book wonders. Agents want writers who write, who are planning a career. Our job as agents help you build that career. I am a fabulous agent, Gina Panitieri, and she helps me do that.
1: Just like you want to find an agent who does that for you. Amazing advice, Paula. Thank you so much. You are I can't say it enough. She is brilliant. She is generous. She is constantly teaching writers and supporting writers. And everyone should be following you and supporting you. I cannot press that enough. If there's anywhere that we can look for you, can you share more information about where we can find your work and the work that you're representing?
0: Okay, well, you can find my books on writing, my mystery series, and my memoir, and my happiness book, whatever. Anything I've written, you can find on Amazon or in, at your favorite bookstore, independentbookstoresbookshop.org. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you can check out my website, which is just com, and thecareerauthors.com, which is a website for writers who want to make a living writing, who are in it for the long haul. That's me and Hank Philippe Ryan and Brian Andrews and Jessica Strausser mm-hmm. and Dana Isaacson, and we post... Free articles and free posts and free interviews for writers who are looking to go the course. I would encourage you to go there and look around and because there's all kinds of great free advice. Follow me on Twitter at Paula S. Meunier on Twitter
1: and certainly on Facebook and Instagram. and Awesome. And all of those resources that she just stated, I will be putting them in the show notes. So please head over to the show notes when the podcast episode is done and you can check out and take action. And all of this great advice and all of these great resources. And hopefully Paula is the agent for you and you will be getting a perfect query ready for her and sending it her way. Again, thank you, Paula, so much for being here with me. It means a lot. I appreciate your time.
0: Sure. And I will tell you that if you are going to query me, make sure that you put Abigail in the subject line so that I know that I found you or you heard me here.
1: Make sure you put that in the subject line. That's a great, another really great last piece of advice there. I remember back in the Writer's Digest 2015, you emphasized that as well. Put Writer's Digest 2015 conference in the subject title because it does show a personal connection. And that's part of what this podcast is about. It's about helping build the personal connection so that we can find each other. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on LitMatch. You can find Paula's manuscript wishlist, where to find her, and the books highlighted in this episode in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with Paula and would like to hear more episodes with literary agents, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers who are ready to query literary agents or who want to learn more about the writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for Litmatch, please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I'll do my best to answer you. I hope you join me next week for more episodes. In the meantime, keep writing. I genuinely can't wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out.